Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Bible and join me in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. There is no S at the end of the word. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, a great commission church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and studying through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In a book that came out just last fall, The Global War on Christians, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Anti-Christian Persecution, John Allen writes at the very beginning of the book, Over the course of my career, I've had many occasions to come into first-hand contact with victims of anti-Christian violence and persecution. I've met Christian refugees from Syria attending an open-air papal mass on Beirut's Beirut's waterfront, people who have no idea if they'll ever be able to go home and whose most desperate message that they wanted to relay to the West was, don't forget about us. Every month I receive uh, in the mail uh, the Voices of the Martyrs, which is a news magazine dedicated specifically to keeping up with what is going on around the world in terms of Christian persecution. This particular uh, edition, the October one, was dedicated to uh, Nigeria and the title of this edition of the magazine, Deny or Die, The War on Christians in Nigeria. And so whether it be uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria or ISIS in Syria, uh, Iraq trying to move even into portions of Turkey, 
uh, the message that we hear over and over from our brothers and sisters around the world is, please don't forget about us. Well, the good news is this for them, that we may forget Jesus is not. Our Lord is very much aware of what is going on around the world and He is always vitally interested in what is taking place in the lives of His people and in His churches, especially those that are being faithful to the Gospel, faithful to the Great Commission, and enduring in the midst of great opposition, trial, and difficulty. Oswald Smith, a missionary himself, said, Any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. I think he's right. What we're going to see in our passage this morning is a church that absolutely had not forfeited its right to exist, but indeed was a church in Philadelphia, Asia, modern-day Turkey, that was passionate about being a Great Commission church. And as a result, the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ was passionate about this church and passionate about enabling them to continue to be a Great Commission church. As we see in these verses, they were faithful to the Lord Jesus. And because of that, he says in verse 8, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. What an incredible promise for our Lord to make to any of his churches. You know, churches may not be mighty in their witness. In fact, they may even look very weak in terms of their outward appearance. But what we learn from this text this morning, and this is so important for most of us because most of us will never have a high-level platform, and most of us will not pastor a, a large church, a, a mega church. And if we're not careful, uh, we can begin to draw the faulty conclusion that what we do does not matter, what we do is not important, that our Lord does not even take notice of what is taking place, and you could not be more wrong. He is not all that concerned about how we look on the outside. He is vitally interested in what is taking place on the inside, who we really are. And the fact is, he sees us like nobody else sees us. And when he sees what is pleasing to him, there are literally no limits on what God may do both for them and what God may also do through them. Chuck Swindoll said it so very well, the size of a congregation, the limitations of its location or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty beyond description or comprehension. When He chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow Him wherever He leads. What we're going to see in these verses today is indeed a great commissioned church that has certain characteristics and as a result, Christ promises them an open door that no one, not even Satan himself, can shut. And what we're going to see is this, uh, this great commissioned church is characterized by a number of things. How they see Christ, uh, how they value the power of the gospel, and how they trust in and live by the promises of God wherever it is that God has 
placed or planted them. I love what Nicholas von Zinzendorf said when he considered his own life in the context of the Great Commission and being a Great Commission Christian. I have but one passion. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. That is a passion that pleases our Savior. And we see that kind of passion displayed here in the church of Philadelphia. So as we walk through verse 7 through verse 13, there's several things I, I want to accomplish. Number one, I want to make sure that we think very importantly and think very deeply about motivation. That we're doing the, the right things for the right reason. Secondly, I want to talk about some trends that are taking place worldwide in terms of, of opposition to the gospel, but also even in terms of bigotry and prejudice that we as the body of Christ must not allow even a foothold in our fellowships. And then I want us to see very clearly the promises that God makes to us in terms of His being faithful to us to take care of us even if we endure persecution and even if we're called upon to endure martyrdom. So what is it that characterizes a Great Commission church? Well, where we begin is going to determine where we go, and this particular church is beginning and doing the right things. Number one, a Great Commission church will see Jesus as awesome. Verse 7, to the angel, and I believe it was a literal angel. I don't take the view that he is referring here to the pastor, but rather I believe God does assign his uh, angelic watchers to churches to oversee them and to look over them. And so to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and he notes three things about the risen and exalted and glorified Christ. These are the words, number one, of the Holy One. Secondly, the true one. Thirdly, this is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Of course, Philadelphia means uh, brotherly love. This was the city of brotherly love. There are a lot of things I could say about it, but the main thing is this. It was known as the gateway to the east. And indeed, it was actually referred to by some as a missionary city for the spreading of Greek culture. Well, our Lord writes to this church and He says to them, yes, you're going to be a missionary city, but not a missionary city or a missionary church for spreading Greek culture, but rather a missionary church for spreading the gospel. This was also a good church. If you read through the seven letters in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, there are two churches that do not receive a word of correction or a word of condemnation. One is the martyr's church, Smyrna, back in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and the other is here, the church of Philadelphia. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that they received no correction or any criticism is that they had such an awesome exalted and glorified view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, did you see what he says about him? First of all, he is the Holy One. This title, by the way, is ascribed to God in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 3. And that same title is, of course, ascribed to the Lord Jesus. Not only here, 
but also in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, and in Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. As the Holy One, He is the Pure One. He is the One separated. As one man said, He is separated from creation as the Creator, and He is separated from sin as the Savior. And the focus here is upon the fact that He is pure, that He is undefiled, spotless, without any stain or blemish. Hosea chapter 11 verse 9 says, God speaking, For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. And when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Holy One was walking in our midst. He is the Holy One. He is the true One. That same uh, phrase is applied again in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10 where actually the two titles are brought together and the Lord Jesus is described as the one who is holy and the one who is true. Truth flows from Him. Uh, He is indeed the reliable one, the trustworthy one, the dependable one. He is the genuine one and the faithful one. What He says you can count on. And furthermore, He has promised this church that He will sustain them and they can indeed count on His Word. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, John describes our Lord as the true God and the eternal life. So He is the Holy One. He is the true one, but also He is the sovereign one. He has the key of David. And He opens and no one will shut, and He shuts and no one will open. Implicitly, this looks back to chapter 1 and verse 18. One of the interesting characteristics about the seven letters to the seven churches is that in every instance, uh, the Lord Jesus will go back and pick up one of the characteristics that you find of our Lord in chapter 1, verse 9, through verse 20. And in 118, he is described as the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. But here, he is also quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22, a messianic passage which says, And I will place on his shoulder, that is Messiah, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And so here, In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, these same exact words are ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Robert Mount says it simply this way, the Davidic Messiah with absolute power to control entrance to the heavenly kingdom is ascribed to the Lord Jesus. So basically it is a, a theological affirmation of the exclusivity of the gospel. He is the only one by means people can come into the kingdom. He admits, he excludes. Again, we don't believe that there are many ways to God. We don't believe that there are multiple paths to God. It is not a popular thing. In fact, I am more and more and more convinced in the days ahead uh, the church is going to receive massive opposition, massive criticism in two particular areas. One will be the gender issue, and the other will be the exclusivity of the gospel, that we would indeed have the audacity to proclaim a message that is exclusive and says there is only one way to heaven, and that one way is the Lord Jesus. First of all, it's never been popular, but I can assure you in the days ahead, it will become increasingly a message that is uh, caricatured as bigoted, narrow, backwards, and unacceptable, and indeed 
intolerable. And yet the Bible says there is only one who has the keys who opens and closes. Perhaps that's why Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and he will find pasture. So we see that a Great Commission church, first and foremost, foundationally, has a very exalted and lofty view of Jesus, both in terms of who he is and also in terms of what he has accomplished. But secondly, in verses 8 and 9, a Great Commission church is also faithful to the gospel. Henry Martin, the great missionary that God took at the age of 31 in his province, said, The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missionary we will become. And so what we see now is a church that was faithful to the gospel, faithful as we're about to see in a number of particular areas. Note, first of all, in terms of a challenge, he commends them, and we, in following in their example, should be persistent in the work of the gospel. He says there in verse 8, just very simply, I know, I have knowledge of your works. Now, let me just digress for just a moment. There are a number of times in the uh, two chapters of Revelation 2 and 3 that the Lord informs the church that He knows their works. He does it in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 1, here in chapter 3, verse 8, and again in chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, this is what struck me, and this is where I want to just take a moment. He just simply says, I know your works. And then He goes on to praise them, and then tell them uh, what he is going to do for them. This stands in striking contrast to the first letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And if you go back for just a moment, look at it with me. Chapter 2 and verse 2. I know your works. Oh, I know more than that. I know your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. He says a lot more good stuff to Ephesus than he even does here to the church at Philadelphia. In fact, he goes into some detail to affirm both their, their works and also their theology. I mean, the church at Ephesus had it all together, perfect theology, if if that is achievable, and they were doing many, 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 many good things. And yet, he has a word of criticism. Verse 4, what does it say? But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I am... talk a lot about this school being a Great Commission seminary. And, of course, it is my heart and passion that we will be a Great Commission seminary. But in working through this passage, God brought deep conviction to my own heart because I began to ask myself the question, all right, you wish to make it transparently clear that this is a Great Commission Seminary, but are you doing it for the right 
reasons. In other words, could it potentially become an area of pride? Something that uh, moves into the area of, of boasting, of, of pride, of thinking that because this is the marching words of Jesus and the last things he said before he ascended back into heaven that, that somehow we are more devoted, we're more committed, we're more faithful uh, than others. And what became so very, 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 very clear to me as I was working through this passage is that our Lord cares not only that we do the right things, but that we do it for the right reasons. And basically, we can fool everybody but Jesus. And he looks into my heart. He looks into your heart. And he sees not only what we do, and it does matter what we do. He praises them for being persistent in the good work of the gospel. But it really does matter also why we do what we do. Indeed, I, I would say it this way, the gospel was their message, but the grace of God was their motive. And we've got to keep hold of both of those things if we're to truly be faithful as a Great Commission church in the context of the gospel. But then secondly, he also tells them to be encouraged by the prospects for evangelism and missions. He says to them, here's a promise, a pledge I make to you. It is the promise of an open door that no one is able to close. Now, some people believe, and you can make a really good argument for this, that he has in mind the open door into the kingdom. Others, though, draw the conclusion that he has in mind the idea of an open door for success in evangelism and missions. And as I again thought about it through last night and again this morning, right or wrong, I become convinced you don't have to make a hard and fast distinction here. If it is an open door into the kingdom, the means whereby that open door is actualized is through what? Open doors for missions and open doors for evangelism. But again, I think Chuck Swindoll makes a really good argument doing intertextual study that pushes the argument in the direction of an open door for missions and evangelism. He notes a similar Greek phrase occurs in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12 in reference to an opportunity for ministry. See also Acts 14, 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3. If this is the true meaning Christ encouraged the church in Philadelphia with opportunities for ministry in the midst of their trials. That church didn't realize the open door they had as the geographic gateway to the east. Philadelphia sat at the crossroads of several languages, cultures, and people groups from an evangelistic and missionary perspective. This dynamic, diminutive church had great opportunities for ministry. In fact, look at what the verse says again. Behold, I have set an open door for you which no one is able to shut. But then he follows up immediately. But I know that you have but little power. I know that you're not a big church. I know that you're not a strong church. I know that you're not a wealthy church. But none of that matters. 
All you have to do is be faithful where you are, be faithful with what you have, and when I open a door for you, the possibilities of what may be accomplished for the Great Commission, the Gospel, and missions has no limits other than the limits of God, and there are no limits on our sovereign, infinite God. And so I don't care today where you are serving the Lord. It may be a church of 25 50. It may be a church that has very limited resources. You may have limited resources, but our God does not. And therefore, there's no limit placed upon what you can do and what you can be as a great commission church. So they are persistent in the work. They should be energized by this promise for evangelism and missions. But then he also tells them that he is going to be, uh, they should be encouraged for what I call their hope for vindication. Look at what he says there in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, two things. Number one, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And number two, they will learn that I have loved you now we need to unwrap this because even at first blush these are striking words uh it's almost uh hard to think that these words are coming from whose mouth the mouth of jesus oh it's a letter that john has written to the church at philadelphia but he is writing the words that were given to him uh, by Christ. Now, let's begin to put this in quick context. Jesus himself uh, in, Matthew, or in, in John's Gospel speaks of these who follow after their father, uh, the father of lies, who is Satan, who is the, the evil one. And so even there, uh, our Lord addresses those who stand in stark opposition to him and those who oppose him. So when he calls it the synagogue of Satan... Please note in mind whom he gives credit to in terms of the source of this opposition and the source of this persecution and the source of these who are standing against them. The ultimate source and the ultimate power and the ultimate motivator behind all of this is Satan. Now granted, these Jews uh, at this particular moment in time in history are doing his work, but keep in mind that the motivating spiritual reality is that of the evil one. So let me again uh, digress for just a moment and say a word about something that for most of us in our immediate context uh, is irrelevant. But that's because we live in a narrow southern evangelical bubble. Anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has attached itself in one form or another to the church throughout her 2,000 years. And granted, a phrase like this that we read in Revelation chapter 3, and we had a similar phrase back in Revelation chapter 2, has fed that. We have to acknowledge this, this morning, if we're to be true, that one of our great heroes in terms of the Reformation, Martin Luther, was an avid, over-the-top anti-Semite. And he wrote some documents that absolutely would curl your hair if you've got straight hair in terms of what he said and the hostility that he expressed toward Jewish people. And I have to tell you, I don't think anyone has said it any better. 
in terms of trying to put this in uh, perspective than, uh, than John Piper. Because John Piper recognizes what a danger this has been to the church. And so Dr. Piper begins to address this issue in a message on a book in Revelation. And he talks about just how spiritually illogical anti-Semitism is. And so let me just read what, what he says because he also brings in some eschatological uh, concepts that, that resonate with my own heart. And so I'm glad that we're on the same page, at least on this issue. But here's what he says. Anti-Semitism has seemed amazing to me because Jesus was a Jew and all the apostles were Jews. And the whole of our Bible is written by Jews except for Luke. And I actually think Luke was a Jew, so now I think the whole Bible is written by Jews. And Jesus said in John 4:22, salvation is from the Jews. And to be a Christian is to be grafted into the covenant made with Abraham, the first Jew, Romans 11, 17 through 24. And to become a Christian is to become Jewish, a child of Abraham by faith, Galatians 3, 7. And on top of all that, the day is coming when the nation of Israel will be brought back to her Messiah and be saved and become one with the Christian church in the covenant of grace established with Abraham, Romans 11, 25, and 26. So, how could so much anti-Semitism, hatred, and persecution and ridicule rise up in the Christian church? Part of the answer is found in texts like this one. It shows that the animosity from the Jewish community toward the Christian church in the first two or three centuries was immense. And it started to go both ways. I only mention this as a partial explanation, not a justification. Hatred and persecution and ridicule toward Jews as a people is never justified. Our main disposition should be Paul's. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved. And so I exhort you, don't joke about Jewishness. Don't use cavalier stereotypes. Don't hate. Don't ridicule. If you pray for Jewish people the way Paul and Stephen and Jesus did, with a heart of longing for their salvation and love for them as the estranged people of God, you will find it very difficult to make jokes or to speak disparagingly. Several years ago, I was doing a prophecy conference in um, uh, southern uh, Louisiana. And after I spoke in my first session, a man came up to me, got right in my face, and using a uh, profane expletive, informed me that the Holocaust was a Jewish myth and that it never happened. I thought at first I had misheard him because I didn't think there was anybody walking the planet that, that, was, that was that stupid anymore. But um, I, I did say to him, w -w what did you say? And he said, I said, and he used his profane explet uh, expletive again, that the Holocaust was a Jewish and is a Jewish myth. And I simply said to him, um, I don't think I want to talk to you anymore. And I walked away. I, I, I actually was just so taken back by it, I, I just did not know how to respond. And then I began to look around, and I continue to look around. And if you just pay attention to the world, uh, anti-Semitism is alive and well globally. 
And there are people, amazingly, who will not only deny the Holocaust, but take great delight in the idea of exterminating an entire race of people. Now let me flip the application and I move on. For most of us in this room, uh, that is not our problem. Even for most of you in the churches where you serve, that's probably not a problem. In fact, in some cases, you're in churches that go too far the other way. And uh, as uh, someone dear to me had to experience a few years ago before he could correct it, he walked into the auditorium where he was being uh, called and had been called as a new pastor and on one side of the auditorium sat the American flag and on the other side of the auditorium sat the Israeli flag. Now, <laughs> that doesn't work. That, that, that is so theologically messed up, I don't even know where to begin. But basically, he was in a church like many of yours, very pro-Israel, uh, very supportive of the Jewish people being in the land, which I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. So most of our churches have not a problem with anti-Semitism. What we do is we have a problem with being anti-Arab and anti-Muslim. And again, I cannot say how many times I've had people express to me, sometimes rather overtly, it'd just be good if all the Muslims were wiped out. It would just be good if all of those related to Islam were taken care of. And I'm thinking, you're just as guilty of bigotry and prejudice as those that we are reading about in this passage of Scripture. Let's just keep in mind, Jesus died for Jew and Arab alike. And he also died for you and me. And therefore, when it comes to anti-Semitism or anti-Islam or anti-anything just because someone happens to follow a false religion or happens to be of a certain ethnicity, dear Lord, forgive us that we are so blind to your global plan to bring into the body of Christ people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. So a Great Commission church sees Jesus as awesome. A Great Commission church is faithful to the gospel and let me hasten, a Great Commission church lives by the promises of God. I'll just touch this very quickly. Verse 10. Because you have, number one, kept my word about patient endurance. And I know how it sounds, but I do agree with the overwhelming number of scholars who say that the best way is my word about my patient endurance. And the idea is the patient endurance that we see in Jesus. Think Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And so what he in essence is doing is putting Jesus forth as a role model and example for them to continue to follow as they patiently endure even in the face of great opposition and persecution. So because you've kept my word about patient endurance, it's connected to the gospel. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Very quickly, working backwards, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, every time it's used in the book of Revelation, is speaking of unbelievers who are the object of God's wrath and judgment. Every time. No debate about that. 
The big debate is what does it mean then that He's going to keep us from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. And this is where people get into uh, a food fight over their view of the rapture. And some want to apply it in terms of a pre-tribulational rapture. Some want to apply it differently in terms of a post-tribulational rapture. And I have my own views on that particular question. But as I've looked at this text uh, a lot over the last several weeks, I think that's missing the point. In fact, if you read the remainder of the book of Revelation, I think here's what you've got to come down and say. He is not promising them here so much physical protection as he is promising them spiritual protection. In other words, I will pour my wrath out upon those who oppose me and make light of what my son did, but I will protect you. So the protection is not so much physical as it is spiritual. Furthermore, even if it is to be applied in a physical way, what the Lord promises generally does not necessarily apply specifically and individually. He can provide protection overall for His children and at the same time, as we read in chapter 6, have martyr after martyr after martyr after martyr after martyr after martyr seal their witness in their blood for His name. And so we keep in mind that He makes a promise that we are secure in Christ, we are secure in Him. In fact, as He goes on to say, because you have indeed kept My Word and you have been faithfully in enduring, I am coming soon. So hold fast what you have that no one may seize your crown, not their salvation, but their reward. And the one who conquers, what will happen? Well, number one, I will give him great security. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And in three times we're going to see this phrase, I will write on him the name. I will write on him the name. The first thing I'll do is I'll write on him the name of my God. Secondly, I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, both a people and a place, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And thirdly, I will also write on him my own new name. What an incredible promise he gives to these people in terms of their identity. The name signifies first who my God is. The name signifies secondly where my home is. And the names signify thirdly who my Lord is. I belong to the Father. Heaven is my home. And Jesus is my Lord, as one man said, I bear in every conceivable way the signature of my God. Charles Spurgeon said this as I close. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, this is the perpetual commission of the church of Christ and the great seal of the kingdom attached to it, giving the power to execute it and guaranteeing its success The king's assurance of his continued presence is with his faithful followers. And David Platt, the new president of our International Mission Board, says this. What a great commentary on this last verse. This, we remember, is the great reward of the gospel. God himself. When we risk our lives to run after Christ, we discover the safety that is found only in his sovereignty the security that is found only in His love, and the satisfaction that is found only in His presence. 
This is the eternally great reward. And we would be foolish to settle for anything less. Let's build Great Commission churches. Let's be Great Commission people. And let's trust God in His promises to protect us, to keep us safe and secure until that day that heaven is indeed our final resting place. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You so much for the uh, exemplary church that we find in Philadelphia. May You in all things be glorified in our churches and in our lives. And though we may be small, weak, unimpressive, may we be faithful to the Great Commission knowing that when we are you will open doors that no one, not even Satan and his demons, can shut. And Lord, you will use us to impact our community and indeed our world with the gospel. And Lord, what an honor and privilege that is. Thank you that as we do it, we know that you're with us. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.